We're talking about taxes, but not the kind that you're thinking about. Taxes, taxes, taxes. Welcome to Trade-Offs, where product habits Heaton Shaw and Profit Wells Patrick Campbell discuss tech through a product-first mindset to inspire you to think differently. This week, they talk about the commoditization of security features. People are treating single sign-on as a luxury rather than a core security requirement. Work OS. It's not needs for the employee. It's actually needs for the organization in order to manage the tools. Google smart chips. This is not like an intuitive thing. Like smart chip, like first of all, the name is not intuitive. And Airbnb. The service fee, the taxes, cleaning, all that kind of stuff. Like people are like, why would I go for this? Why wouldn't I just do a hotel at this point? What's up, man? How we living? Oh, we're, we're living large, right? Like, isn't that what I'm supposed to say? Living, 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 living that COVID dream. There you go. That's what I keep telling people. There you go. Coming to an end, apparently. Massachusetts just said, I think May 29th. Nice. Just open. Just straight up open, apparently. Nice. Except for like medical facilities and something else. But yeah, I'm excited. Excited to, to be out and about. What do you want to talk about today? we got a couple things, I think, on the docket here. We do. There's a site that I saw a while ago that you reminded me of called oh, that's right. SSO.tax. Um, for everyone listening that wants to go check it out. Uh, so I think there's some interesting things to say about there. And then just today, the day of recording, which is May 18th, to kind of call that out, uh, Google announced a bunch of stuff as part of Google Workspace and Google Docs and stuff that I think we're going to get in some interesting discussions. Yeah. Have a, has a lot some to do really with pricing and packaging. Well, and also just in terms of like the market, like they're kind of notion and coda, you know, ripping basically yep. taking like those building blocks, you know, puns intended actually with that sentence and basically like starting to inject that into docs, which I think we saw they had a like Airtable competitor. But that was a separate product. I forgot the name of it, but it was exactly. a separate product. So it was like, it wasn't like Google Core. Right. And that doesn't mean totally. anything except it wasn't Google Core, right? And Google Core hits, yeah. you know, 100 million, whatever, however many users, probably more than 100 million, but like half a billion users. I don't know how how popular, if you even include, include Gmail and personal accounts, Docs actually is, but it's probably arguably the number one cloud tool. Interesting. All right, let's jump in. So let's talk about SSO.tax because yeah, that one that. I think is a little bit shorter. Yeah. So for folks folks who don't know what it is and you're not going to go to it, I feel like I should give credit. Someone by the name of Rob Kahin, C-H-A-H-I-N, basically created a GitHub pages for the SSO wall of shame. And basically he's saying people are treating single sign-on as a luxury rather than a core security requirement. So basically, in order to get SSO, which is, you know, a mechanism for basically you know, using the same authentication that a company, you know, uses for signing into to products and apps and stuff like that, making that a premium feature. So another way to look at it is, is like making two-factor authentication a premium feature, which, which happened for a really long time before now it's just so expected that you kind of need to make it part of the core. But yeah, names a bunch of companies, everyone from Airtable all the way to, you know, Zapier basically who charge a base price without SSO. And then all of a sudden SSO price, that's, you know, a hundred percent or more um, increase in price. And so yeah, it's kind of fascinating. What's your take? You're a little bit more enterprisey on on building some of these features, at least right now, than than I am. What's what's your take on this? We're in a transition period where I think there are a number of sort of systemic things that are happening that I feel really old talking about this because I, I feel like I remember this stuff from like five years ago, 10 years ago, and even possibly 15 now. 
uh, about like how yeah. I could say the same thing and it would be true. So, um, you know, it is what it is. But the thing I'm noticing is this, as we've gotten more mature in the software industry, we got loose about security, privacy, even compliance and things like that. Like SOC 2 certification was on nobody's mind 18 months ago, two years ago, nobody, like literally, except Vanta, of course. We use Vanta. Quick plug for Vanta. I like Vanta. We've evaluated all the SOC 2 type 2 tools and the compliance tools, and we keep coming back to Vanta. Just heads up in case anyone's looking for a SOC 2 tool. Not that this is an ad, but like seriously, all the other ones are so immature compared to Vanta. Anyway, they were thinking about this problem many years ago, right? That's a company worth mentioning because it has ridden the wave. Like the wave has is here, and the wave is simple. In order for software business, so a SaaS product, to sell to companies of, let's say, 200. Now it's 200. It used to be 1,000, but 200 employees or more. And that number is going to keep going down, I'm pretty sure. They need A, B, C, like these very specific things. Another plug is Enterprise Ready. So it's enterpriseready.io or something. But either way, you type in Enterprise Ready in Google, you'll see my happy face somewhere on the page just because I gave them a testimonial when they first came out. I want to say three or four years ago, and they have an outline of all the enterprise features you need in order to service the enterprise. And now it's not the enterprise. It's tiny companies that are 200 employees or more require you to have SOC 2 type 2 certification, require you to have SSO and all these things. So lo and behold, what happens? Well, you want those features as a customer from these software tools, they're going to charge you more money. And honestly, these features in most products, even though they should be, but that's a discussion for a different time. These features should be treated as first-class citizens in the products almost as much as the product itself. But as SaaS folks, and, you know, seriously, it's hard to build software. Why would you consider those like that core, right? Most companies don't. Um, But yet they're the limiting factor or the deciding factor on people buying your product on the higher level. Because what ends up happening is you might get your awesome bottom-up adoption. Great. At some point, IT comes in. And InfoSec comes in and says, yo, what's up? Why are we using this? Yes. What is it for? Yes. And I got to say a thank you, but no thank you to Dropbox. And the reason for that is the n- amount of IT people I talk to that tell me they hate Dropbox and what Dropbox did to them about the bottom up has, I think, been a major catalyst to the lockdown of this stuff, right? Because Dropbox would show up and be like, yo, do you know that like 100 people at your company are using Dropbox and you have no clue about it? Oh, you want to have a clue about it. Oh, cool. Pay us. Like straight up, right? And like for Dropbox, props to them. Thank you, but no thank you is exactly what I got to say because they have basically made it so that anyone trying to do that sale now gets blocked with features and even like said, no, we're just going to go use this other tool we already use and we're going to move all the employees over to it because you know what? We don't want to pay for your tool and it's not secure. It's just not, right? So we live in this weird intermediary place where the new standards for SaaS have not been set around basically policies, compliance, privacy, and security. And we're just re-ramping up on that. Because like there's SOC 2 Type 2, there's also ISO, there's also like what, SASE or a bunch of other ones, SAS something, blah, 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 SAS, whatever on all this stuff. And then of course, there's the old school ones of like HIPAA and kind of FINRA and Fed ramp and you know I could go off right. There's a lot depending on what your software does, and then of course there's great, the wonderful GDPR, right? And then there's CCPA in California, 
right? Or whatever. And I don't even know if I'm using the right acronyms anymore, but there's a lot of them. So anyway, Patrick, you yeah. asked me the question. It's loaded. I think about this all the time because I still own an analytics company and I'm dealing with IT folks and information security folks and talking to a ton of SaaS products too, because nobody's got their stuff together in terms of what IT and security teams actually need, including Microsoft and Google. It's just been interesting to learn all this stuff. And then you get hit with like this site that talks about the SSO tax, which is simply if you want to use Google Auth or Microsoft or whatever service you're using to sign into this product and pull in all the directory data and and this product to know about all your teams and your employees and all that stuff, you got to pay them more money. Yeah. And now we're calling it a tax. So I have mixed feelings about the whole idea there in terms of should it be a tax? Should, should we think of it that negatively or not? But at the end of the day, I, as an organization, need to pay more money for these features if I want to buy them. And that's the yeah. crux of the challenge, I would say. I think it just flows with the ebb and flowing of like relative value of features with this type of stuff. Okay. Like you kind of hit on this, but to say it a little bit differently or in a little bit more of a, a pricing and packaging lens, you basically have a situation where you know, we've seen this in actual data where like two-factor authentication is the example I used before, like in our, you know, kind of grid that we do for for measuring, you know, feature value, it went from basically being an add-on, like an add-on that people would like opt into essentially. And slowly over time, it moved into a differentiable feature. And then slowly over time, it moved into a core feature. So it, it basically, like we saw that in the past, like five years or so especially for a consumer product, like consumer product, you just build that right away just to combat fraud. And most B2B products, there's also enough infrastructure. So I think, I mean, I don't know if there was a two-factor authentication tax.com, you know, type site, but I'm pretty sure like the sentiment was basically the same. I think the difference with something like SSO is like, if you just think of like the engineering lift for something like two-factor versus SSO, they're very different. And SSO is something that's like only wanted by typically larger companies because they have like an active directory. And so it is an enterprise tax. I don't know if it's quite a security tax, but either way, I think the expectation is probably just getting more and more prevalent with like things like Okta and Auth0 and these types of things. On the ground, I think it's a security tax. And the reason I say that is because if you didn't care about security, you wouldn't want those features. Like that that's the fundamental reason like people are, are willing to sort of pay for those features is so that they feel like the product is more secure. So the Okta tax is probably more accurate because they, they're the ones that I think really like demonstrated the both the value and also the burden, right, of having all these products and having people sign on to sign into them. Like they were early on this. I'm going to give another shout out because like I think two more actually because I think there's just a fundamental set of tools and necessary products that kind of fund this capability. Like, and I call it fund in particular because it's like, you're right. Like, are you going to have an engineer go spend a month figuring out SSO or two-factor, right? Probably wouldn't take a month, but are you going to have them do that and build all the code? Or are you going to go over to Twilio and say, Twilio is going to take care of that for me or whatever other tool has been that has been on top of Twilio to help make two-factor easier because there's those things too. Uh, so that's one shout out because like, I think Twilio, a lot of their business is built also on the fact that this whole two-factor thing is a big deal, right? And it's something that a lot of companies need. And, you know, I don't know the numbers, but I'm sure Twilio Power is a great majority of those two-factor systems. Then you have WorkOS, which is another shout-out. 
I like work OS. I love work OS and I love the, I haven't used them, but I just love everything about, I love the value proposition. We entertain using them on a regular basis for a number of reasons at both my companies. Uh, We decide not to for a bunch of reasons, but they're not because work OS is bad or we don't want to. They're just because we have some very granular needs in, in our business that like, they're just not there yet with their API and stuff. But again, another company that's doing extremely well, like Vanta, that is servicing this, I would say need if not just straight up industry. Because now in order for you to get company-wide adoption, even if you're not going to charge more money per employee or whatever, and it's the same price, but in order to get it, you need these things. And these things are just checkbox requirements and they're treated as such by most SaaS companies. And so you can just go to WorkOS or you can go to Twilio or you can go to Auth0 and go get this functionality, right? Even the play that we talked about of Okta buying Auth0, like, that's a move in this sort of space. And and the reason I keep saying it's security and essentially IT related things is because that department, those departments in a company are driving the need. They're making it so that these software vendors need to step up and provide more of these features and this functionality. This is what enterprise ready is all about. It's not needs for the employee. It's actually needs for the organization in order to manage the tools in a way that they've been historically used to when they were racking servers and putting software on servers and then deploying them across the employees. Now you're not doing that, but you still want that security. You still want that administrative capabilities. And, you know, obviously SaaS companies have realized they can charge more for that. One of the weird things though, is like, it's come all the way down to 200 person company requiring it is what I'm noticing. While before you're talking 1,000, 1,500, 10,000. So the deal sizes were larger before when you built these features. So the features were sort of more lucrative, if you want to call it that. I think they're actually less lucrative now. And at some point, all it's going to take is enough SaaS companies not charging for these features for some things to start shifting. And sometimes in markets, the first company to do that ends up taking a lot of the market share away, right? And I'm not saying this is a move that like should happen. It's just something that's in my head when I think about these problems and what we've caused. We basically built out an ecosystem of these tools now because of these of these needs that are coming from the top of organizations, not from the bottom. Yeah. I think the thing to think about here, just from a practical perspective, is just this is why it's so important to understand basically the decay rate of certain features. Um, talk more about that. And I haven't heard enough people talk about that. What do you mean by decay rate? Yeah, I mean, the basic, the basic idea is just the cycle of different things, right? Now, there's some markets, like even look at, you know, and we're not quite going to jump into this topic quite yet, but like if you look at like, you know, what happened with Google today with the smart chips concept, like this whole idea of editable blocks, like that kind of came about from, you know, I think it was Airtable basically for the first time, maybe like they're just kind of evaluating a spreadsheet. Then Notion kind of came about, Coda, et cetera. And in the doc space or when in the space where there's like really wide markets, you normally see decay rate start like go quicker because all of a sudden the market is big enough that people are like, oh, what's my variation of that? They get a bunch of traction. Everyone starts stealing it. And then they like last, you know, whatever long and if they don't innovate, right? Because Trello did this with, you know, kind of some of the things that we've talked about in the past with um, basically the Kanban boards. And so what we've noticed, and this happens a lot, is that like features will decay from being an add-on, meaning a small amount of your users 
want the feature and are willing to pay for it. So that's like a feature that's like, it's not core. It's not something that you're going to put into a premium tier. It's like, if someone really cares about this, they'll pay for it. And some of these things don't decay quickly. So like premium support decayed really quickly. Like basically the expectation for support has just gone up over the years, but something like priority support, there's only 20% of people or 20 to 40%, depending on your product that actually really care about that. And if they're willing to pay enough, it's a fantastic add-on. But other features, what will happen are things like analytics. They went from like an add-on, like, oh, we only care, only the people who care about this are willing to pay to like, you know, it's just kind of expected or I'm willing to pay for it in a premium tier. So it decays from add-on to differentiable feature. So it's like my power users or my premium users will care about this. And then eventually what ends up happening is, is like something will sit there, but a lot of times the features then decay down to core. And what's kind of scary is, is that core there's still some value in it, meaning I'm going to choose the product because of this over one of their competitors. But there's some features that then decay into commoditized features. We call them trash features, not publicly, but or we do publicly, but not in like a professional setting. We do it more in our marketing. But those are features like if I had a fleet management app, I need a mobile app right? Like my, my team or my product is going to have to have a mobile app. That's not going to be core. That's not going to be differentiable. It's going to be just like so expected, but I don't think enough people really realize this. And this is where you get a lot of like bottoms up competition with some mid-market enterprise products, because all of a sudden what ends up happening is, is like someone else sees that the thing that they're talking about has decayed and they just start including it in core when the old school company is still charging as a differentiable basis for it. I think one company has done really well with this is HubSpot. HubSpot like chases the decay a lot. This is where now they have freemium. So their freemium product just becomes beefier and beefier and their premium products become more and more premium. So yeah, that's the thing that you need to kind of track. And there's ways you can like quantitatively do this, but it's also okay just as a product person to like struggle just like, hey, like what's happening in the market? Should we give this away in our core? Should we charge differently for it? So on and so forth. I think this is a really good... Uh, topic. I almost want to dedicate time to it, but I have one question before we move on from the topic. And my question is, you might've answered it, but I think like, I'm curious about it. So I'm just going to ask you, which is how do you identify the decay? How do you actually identify that something's decaying? Cause like, I love the HubSpot solution to this. And I think that's a really great framing, which is we have premium, we have free as features decay, we're willing to provide them to the free free people and just add them in there. Makes the free people happy. And if you're doing enough for the paid people where you've, you've added enough features for them, they don't care that all of a sudden something they might have decided to upgrade for is now available for free. Because there's a little bit of that that you need to kind of just watch for. So I love the framework because it, it's just very clear, right? If someone has a freemium product or it might even be a reason to launch a free product right? Because it's becoming commoditized. So I think I'm really curious about your just thoughts on how do you identify decay? The proper way to do this is to periodically run willingness to pay research and like relative preference research. And you can do that through conjoint or max diff. And that's a proper way to do this. And what you do just to kind of close that thought out without going too deep, it's easier to like send videos and stuff that we've done on this um, than, than to describe it. But the idea is, is like, if I have a similar audience, like I'm looking at VPs of product between X and Y size of companies or whatever it ends up being. And I look at basically over time, the willingness to pay for something is going down. 
like the the individual willingness to pay on a feature by feature basis goes down or when i stack rank it against a group of features basically the magnitude of their like oh my god i need this um and there's there's a number for that basically is going down as well like you can see it very very easily now 20% of companies are going to properly do that, maybe, right? You know, the, the best of the best who are actually doing their customer research. So here's kind of the hacks. A hack is like one, if like the easiest thing to identify an add-on is if you look at a group and it could be a group in a tier or it could be across your customer base. And you basically have a feature that like less than 20% of people really want it, but those people who really want it are willing to pay or they seem to be willing to pay um, or you're positing they're willing to pay that like that's an add-on, right? Really it's less than 40%. But as soon as you start to get over 40%, if there's a group of people who like they really want it and they might be willing to pay, but like it's definitely something that's over 40%, that's probably differentiable. And that's where you can kind of like set that benchmark. And then if there's something where it's like, no, I really want it, but I'm not willing to pay for it. Like I'm just expecting it. Then it's probably core or it's going to end up being something that's commoditized. Commoditized, that normally gets into a world where it's just like you would be insane not to have it right like every single competitor has it every single person like if, if you don't have it people are like they feel like you're an idiot or something like that right normally a core feature can be something that like is really really valued but maybe it's not like shared across the competitive landscape and it might be a reason someone chooses you over someone else but it's not quite a perfect heuristic there but that's how i would think about it essentially makes perfect sense that got me thinking about kind of our next topic actually. So yeah. it's pretty good because it's very related. Well, it follows, to the, yeah. it stands to reason yeah. with, yeah. So you want to say what, what happened with yeah. like the smart chips and Google? Yeah. So today was Google's IO event, I guess is what it's called. And they announced something called smart chips, which is kind of an interesting name. But anyway, as you said earlier, they're basically codaifying or notionifying Google Docs. And it seems like really slowly, but in a good way. And, and I say slowly on purpose because they've been known to move slow, then move fast. And this is a little bit of like technical stuff, but like they basically announced in a blog post actually a few days ago, I think that they're going to change the way that they render Google Docs. Like they're going to make it a canvas, whatever that means. There's a whole bunch of little technical details about it, but basically a bunch of Chrome yeah. extensions break that we're integrating with it and stuff like that. And it didn't really make sense that announcement as to why they were doing that, but they did say they were doing that. Fast forward to today they announced this, you know, chips thing, smart chips and all that. And it's basically the same as blocks in Notion and more. So they're basically like the high level of it is they're adding more integrated functionality into docs in a way they never had. For example, this is a stupid one, but like if you ever link to another doc, it's still a link today. What they're doing is they're going to yeah. show you the title and show you the little icon of what type of doc it is, right? And stuff like that. So there's a lot of like just little things you now, if you've used Notion, you've used Coda, you've used some of these newer tools, even Airtable, you're like, I kind of expect that. And Google doesn't have it. And so that's what I'm saying. It relates to your point, which is like, okay, so Google's waking up on this productivity suite that they have that's ubiquitous. And they're going to start adding the functionality that has made people use Notion and Coda in addition to Google. Google hasn't lost these customers, which is really interesting because they rely on Google for email. And, and even if someone shares a Google Doc with them, it's like one of the easiest ways to like move docs around and information around. They get access to it. And then now all of a sudden they're in Google. But as a team, they might be using Notion or Coda or something, right? So what I'm wondering and what 
is just fascinating to me is like how this impacts the the consumer. And I know this from the research we did around like why people switch, that people tend to switch document tools, uh, productivity tools because of features. The other tool has a feature that I have FOMO for or that I really need right now, one or the other, and I'm going to go try it out. And it's so cheap and easy to try it because you just sign up and start playing with it and you see if you like it. And if you do, it's pretty easy to evangelize it inside a company. I mean, this is this is the playbook that has been working for Notion. And I say playbook, but I don't think they're doing anything except just building good product that people want or want to use and features that are kind of forward thinking. And now we're looking at parity and Google actually catching up. That announcement on the technical side was actually a big deal. That's what I mean by slow than fast. They probably have been yeah. spending a lot of time re-architecting it in order to support smart chips and everything they want to do that we don't even know about yet. And it's easy to look at Notion and Coda and say, oh, they're just copying them. I think this is way deeper than that. This is like one of the top used products at Google, right? Like in the world, you know? And so they must be really thinking through the future of Docs and Sheets and Google Workspace in order to figure out how they can continue to be competitive and kind of reinvent something that they actually initially obviously bought, but then really invented and popularized. So they bought a company called Rightly uh, that actually had this tech that was the original docs tech that I think needed to be revamped for this new world that they need to get into. So, you know, the, the pricing question and the thing that like, I just am dying to like hear from you about is like, and again, this is just hypothetical and conjecture, but like what happens to these other products if someone's already sitting there saying, I'm already paying like, you know, single digit dollars a month for every employee in Google. Why should I pay single digit dollars a month for Notion or Coda or whatever else if I'm already paying for Google and now Google's starting to have the functionality that people were looking at Notion and Coda for, right? And, and obviously they don't have all the functionality. There's all the nuances of one software versus another, but on the macro level and the narrative level, Google's now catching up. It's a little bit TBD, like all things, because it's a little fresh, obviously. I think Google is going from innovating on the core to nibbling to gain market share. And what I mean by that is like, think of like Microsoft Office. Obviously, it's been around for decades. Um, it's got every single feature that you can imagine. Google looked at that. Obviously, it wasn't like a one-time thing, but they looked at that and they went, what's the 20% we need? And what's the thing that differentiates this to a point that we can like gain adoption, right? And really, it was being able to collaborate via the cloud, which Microsoft was like, that's dumb. No one's going to want that, right? Um, which is kind of, you know, funny, obviously. And then, you know, things like basically like the ability to kind of update in real time and in like a, a number of these other pieces. And so you have this kind of situation where they now have this core. Well, what's the future of the core? Like something with AI? Like, I don't know, right? Like, I don't know what like the next iteration of Docs is. We kind of started seeing this with, you know, Notion and stuff like that, but they're they're kind of feature-based, right? So we use Notion, we love Notion. And so like, I'm thinking like, what would make us like switch? It probably is going to come down to cost and it's probably going to come down to some element of, can we use Google Docs the way that we use Notion? And right now, like there's a little bit of a mental block just in terms of like, I haven't created a Google Doc in probably a year at this point because we do everything in Notion. I still use the Sheets, you know, Google Sheets because that's kind of a little bit easier, a little bit smoother in Notion, but there's probably a world where we go back. So to finish my point before getting into another one, 
I think what ends up happening is now Google, what they're doing is they're basically like, what are all these nibbled features that we can start to take that brings people back to the core? Because the other thing that you didn't, you didn't mention, I don't know if it's been popularized yet, just the idea of the meeting, like the Google Meet meeting in the dock, right? Where I see everyone's face in there and we're all in the dock and I can start the meeting, right? Like very similar to like, you know, the, the, the shortening that cycle to that actual value, Right now, I don't have to like do three, four clicks to get a Zoom started, invite everybody, open the doc, share my screen. It's just like we can just be right there, right? Yep. So I, I think it's just this this nibbling in order to bring more people to the core instead of like, you know, people like trying to innovate in the terms of like some revolutionary thing. And I think there's other companies that are trying to figure this out, but I don't know. I think Notion, it's going to be too expensive for some people to switch once people start figuring out how to use smart chips. I think the issue though that we're that Google will run into is like this is not like an intuitive thing. Like smart shit, like first of all, the name is not intuitive. And in addition to that, like even using it in Notion is not intuitive. The learning curve for Notion is so high. Like this is the one thing complaint that I had. It's so high. And I still have situations where people are like, oh yeah, just do this thing. And I'm like, I have no idea how to do what you just described. So I don't know. Those are some scattered thoughts. In a very large sense, this goes back to our previous conversation. Notion still has an audience, they're still gonna have to innovate. The market is enormous, but I think at the end of the day, it's a scary prospect to go up against Google, who's you know going slow and then fast, like you're talking about. Yeah, I think people tend to think about both Microsoft and Google as slow, but when you look at their update cadence on the products they actually decide to like go after, and you look at their change logs, it's startup speed scary, like in terms of how fast they can go when they want to. For example, the Microsoft OneDrive like changelog is super intense. And you can just tell that they're pouring gas on that fire and making sure that Dropbox never needs to exist. And you know, Google Drive is like, oh, it's Google Drive, but there's also OneDrive. And it has like a lot of these other things, right? And like I think they know their audience and they also know who they are in terms of what they're good at, which is sh- shipping lots of features really fast and in ways making a mess, but that is what it is. Like that's just how the history of the company and how they do things there. Well, Google is more like they're doing what you said, I think. I think they figured out that these little features are causing problems for them and problems yeah. in the churn. And I mean, realistically, if Docs kept innovating, why wouldn't it just be Notion? Like, why not? Like, there's nothing about Notion that makes me feel like you couldn't have figured out that that needs to be built and build it, right? Not to marginalize Notion. I think they invented a lot of cool stuff in terms of UI interactions and that slash stuff and the blocks and all the things like they're really cool but google's woken up and they've said hey they are basically showing that they want to make these products better in a way that's like you said chipping off all those little things and just death by a thousand cuts it's usually death by a thousand cuts of uh, goliath gets the death by a thousand cuts but here i think you're going to see some erosion around david actually feeling that that pressure in a different way um because quite frankly like if if you think objectively about the size of Notion and Coda's teams, and then you look at the size of Google's teams working on this stuff, or even Microsoft's, like if Microsoft and Google can get their act together in terms of wanting to make something better, they have the capabilities to actually go actually own more of the market than less of it than they even have today and have more of the attention again. So I think shipping cadence is is one of the biggest things. And like, you and I don't necessarily talk about enough, but probably should more is like, what is the actual implication on growth for both sides? And I think you kind of got to it, right? You basically said that like Google can probably grow faster or at least 
stop the bleeding of growth if they start actually attacking some of these things. And then the switching cost goes up for Google, which is what the switching cost has turned into for Notion and Coda now, which is it's high. It's somewhat high because there are people in your organization that are using the little things that Notion does. One of a million little things or five of a million little things that make them like love the product and kind of like you can pry it from my cold dead hands kind of thing. Right. And that, that is something that Google is going to be up against. Right. But the alternative for Google, there is none. They have to go do this. So I'm super pumped. I'm super pumped that they're doing it. I'm also pumped that that like, it makes all the startups like kind of have to show up again too. Right. Cause a lot of them, like the, the typical startup problem is similar one to what Google and Microsoft end up having, which is you build fast, you build fast, you build fast. And I know like tech debt is like two bad words here, right? Because like we talk about them a lot, but like then you build all the tech debt and then you got to clean it up, right? Like, and there are specific signs over at Notion and, and even Coda and these these businesses that like they're either aware or unaware or they were unaware and now they're aware. And now they're able to kind of like make some of those changes. Like Notion's interface is now 50% faster is what they're saying, right? And that means that they care and they've worked on that. But when you look at that in comparison to Docs, Docs already had the speed, right? But again, getting in the technicals, Docs had to completely change their front-end architecture, it sounds like, in order to support all these features that Notion has had for years, right? It's a very interesting thing to watch. And I think we've never lived in times like this where, Instead of acquiring Notion, Google will just end up like just figuring out how to build it themselves, right? And, and, and just bake it in. And it's another fascinating little thing, right? In terms of like these existing markets and how hard and fast you go after them as a startup and whether they're worth it or not. Yeah. I was just thinking as you were kind of elucidating that, like, what would I do if I was Notion? I would go deep on like the wiki side of things. I think Docs is primarily going to be used as like an office, Microsoft Office type competitor. Good for teams for collaboration, but like not necessarily good for like doc management even because it's not, it's probably not going to have centralization as much. Like right now, just think of the hierarchy, like to share something with your team in Google Docs, you kind of got to share it with everybody. And yes, you can default it to share it with everybody, but not everyone's going to have the same like homepage and interface. I think that we use Notion for our wiki basically. And I know that the previous product we were using, we liked, but it wasn't great for like engineering notation, these types of things. And Notion's like great for everything. I would just like go deeper on that rather than like the note side of things to notions credit this was now like a couple years ago i think i actually got an interview with uh, ivan for writing my kind of history of notion post and and the title says that notions going after atlassian because confluence and jira and that suite is really what he said he cared about and wanted to like go after not google right which i think is a super valid point that you're making and something that at least in the DNA of the company seems to be at the core, which is we we do want to build a better wiki, you know, like that's like ultimately where it lands and one that's more integrated and, you know, you can do more with it's a I think the killer, powerful. like they should integrate with Google Docs if they don't already. I know you can like embed stuff, but like that would be the killer like move that I would make at this point is that integration. But I don't know. I think it's also like hard because the market's enormous. Like, so people are going to prefer theirs over other things well, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And it's also the personas, right? Who's using it? Why are they using it? And what are they using it for? And can you double down on that core 
And with products like Notion and Google Docs and Coda and Airtable, like the use cases are unlimited. So it makes it super, super hard internally as a product team to actually go figure out who the master is to service, so to speak, if you want to call it that. But like, who's the customer? And and who, which customer do you want to make happy and need to make happy? And if there's so many and so many use cases, it's a tricky, tricky problem to solve, right? And then everyone wants yeah. wall-to-wall adoption. So that's another yeah. like really interesting factor here. And like Google has that at, in an instant because they power your email. They have wall-to-wall like from day zero. So so my 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 move that like, I think ClickUp will do it before anyone else does, but like, because they're, they're kind of the wild card here in a good way, which is like, they're just set up to iterate. Like, I feel like the company's set up to iterate features because that's their promise, right? But the wild card here is like the company that powers email. What's the new company that powers email? I was really bullish on Hey.com with Basecamp, but the thing is like, outside of all their recent issues with the team and, and all that, that, that sucks. And there's lots of sucks across the board and that, that's a different story. But prior to that, I thought hey.com plus Basecamp and whatever they decide to do would, would work as a productivity suite for people. And because you get your email and you get that. The issue though is that company is so specific and for lack of a better word, religious about their beliefs, about who to target and who they're going to make happy that I don't think they're ever going to build a tool that like the largest companies in the world want to use or that actually go wall to wall in the way that, you know, Slack does or the way that Notion wants to, et cetera. And so anyway, to me, like the company that adds email in at the core and makes it so that when I start up, I want to use your tool for email, I think is is a very viable option, more an angle of competition that kind of revolves around one thing, which is your email that is like ubiquitous. I mean, it's where exchange server, you know, started the game and like has just gone after it. It's what turned into active active directory, you know, and it's like the core of honestly, the old school productivity thesis is still based on email. It's still based on this idea of a record of who's in the company. That's where skim has kind of evolved to and all these other concepts, right. That we kind of rely on even related to our enterprise convo. So yeah, I was excited about that. But then I realized that like, they don't want that customer. They don't want all the customers. They just want a few of them right over at Basecamp, And that that's just what they do. But waiting for another startup to come around that's not Basecamp to actually start with email. I think it's a hard challenge. I think it would take hundreds of millions of dollars to pull that play off. But if I were to think about what would work, it would be finding a way to get to that core. And that core is your identity at work. And the core is really email. And everything gets offshooted off that, especially with all this SSO stuff that's been going on and all that, right? Obviously. So, But my, my bet would be on ClickUp actually doing something like that more than anybody else. I think this is good for Canva. Tell me more. Google is not focusing on how to help you create better product out of their product. They're helping you collaborate more and bring more people into the process. With this, this is not like a small change. Like this is not like, oh, just like a little cute feature. This is like, no, oh, this is like an here. infrastructural thing that is going to continue to expand. This is them saying so, we want this. We want to be in this game. No, I know. Just right, understanding right. like yes. basic database architecture. This is like not a small thing for them to have done. And so that's why we're talking about it. You might be like, well, why are we talking about like oh. little like boxes inside something? No, it's it's like, like, no. Yeah, this is big. So I think this is good for Canva. Well, then, then, we'll then Google just buys Canva and we call it a day there, right? Like, anyway. I think Google should buy Canva at some point. I think that's smart. There's a lot of good that, DNA that there. There's hedge. a lot, lot of lot of great products. Well, it helps hedge against 
Adobe. That's right. It's not like Adobe and Google compete that much, but that's they do right. compete. That's right. You know, so gives them an edge. They also yeah, know this stuff pretty well as Google, like in general, like this kind of software, right? So the other thing I saw on Twitter is there's a lot of like anti Airbnb sentiment going on right now. Why? What um, happened? I don't know why. It doesn't look like there was any like one particular thing. It's just when I look through the hashtag, it's just a ton of people complaining about the fees. A lot of like hotels over Airbnb stuff, like a lot of stuff going on. I think there was like an original tweet where basically the fees, cleaning and taxes were more than the actual price for the nights. And then everyone's just piling onto it. I think that's what I saw. So, but so it is kind of interesting. Something related to the COVID effect and what's going on related to that is what it sounds like, right? Like, yeah, and I think changes. now people are, yeah, they're coming back and it's like, the service fee, the taxes, cleaning, all that kind of stuff. Like people are like, why would I go for this? Why wouldn't I just do a hotel at this point? Which is kind of interesting. But I know that Brian Chesky came out and said that like some high number, like not a majority, but like 20, 30% of all bookings are for more than 28 days right now, which is kind of crazy. If you think about it, more and more people are doing the work from home, nomad thing, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, that's a little, little, little snack or dessert for the end here of something that's interesting. Fascinating. I'm going to go dig that up and see what's going on. It's really curious. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. It is the advantage of something, especially with regulatory pieces, eventually can become basically on parity and then it has to compete. You see this in a lot of markets, right? Like the Grubhub, DoorDash type thing. Like, oh, it's cheaper. It's amazing, right? And then all of a sudden they just ratchet up. Like Uber right now is like still kind of crazy. It's probably the same price as a taxi, but it's so much more convenient. So it's like, screw it. We're still going to use it. I don't know if Airbnb has that advantage. You know, it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for like a kitchen and longer stay, I'm sure it does. But if you're looking for something quick just for the night, it's probably more than a hassle than it's worth right now versus like Hotel Tonight or something else. But I think they bought Hotel Tonight, so it doesn't doesn't really matter. Still get the cash. Anyways, little dessert to leave, but uh, let's do a recap. So we talked about... SSO.tax about security features becoming more and more commoditized. Some of these like enterprise ready type features talked about work OS enterprise ready Vanta. Then we talked about what's going on with smart chips out of Google, kind of the, I don't want to say commoditization, but them going deep into productivity, introducing some features like notion talked a little bit about Airbnb there at the end. Any, mm-hmm. Anything else? You threw the random one in there, but a good one. Yeah. No, nothing else. Nothing else I can think of. Yeah. Awesome, man. Cool. Well, um, have a good rest of the week, man. You too. See ya. See ya. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. Also, make sure to subscribe to and tell your friends about Tradeoffs, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. 